0: To life, we're like a vine attached to the main branch. Right? And so we abide in him. And that is like life flowing in and out of us. Um, a guy by the name of Brother Lawrence, who's like an old mystic, um, he wrote a really small book called Practicing the Presence of God. Uh, and it was, it was an unbelievable book because what he's saying is for us to really understand the presence of God, we have to be aware of it around us. Right? Like it is, it, God is present in this place. Think of the burning bush with Moses. It says, the bush was burning but never extinguished. So the bush was always on fire. It was Moses who had to draw his attention to it. Right? The bush had been burning and Moses didn't recognize it, but he drew his, his attention. He, he transfixed his kind of heart towards it and he was made aware of the presence of God. And so for us in a, in a, in a 21st century world, as we begin to say, how do I follow Jesus? Is, is I have to then turn my attention to the divine, to the things around me. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a lot in our world that works against this, right? There's a lot, and this is kind of the Twitter-fied world, right? Like, I love Twitter, I love social media, all that. But, but what we have to understand is it it's created this kind of instantaneous expectation in us. You know, like I remember when the Boston bombings took place, my wife and I were, um, we were driving up from L.A., and we had stopped at an In-N-Out right on the other side of the, the grapevine, kind of came down there, and we stopped at this little In-N-Out, and we were listening to the radio, and uh, that's when I heard the news. So I'm standing in line, and I pull out my Twitter feed, and I scroll to the very top, and it's filled with reporters and people, like pictures from those that were at the parade instantly. I mean, this is like 10 minutes after it happened, and I can instantly kind of almost be there. Like, that, that's amazing. You know what I mean? Like, like, did you guys know that out in the Bay Area, I can order ice cream on Amazon? Think about it. How awesome is that, right? I can order ice cream within 30 minutes. If I pay eight bucks, they'll bring ice cream to my door. Now, that's not something I need, but how awesome is that? Right, like, like, who is not excited for a drone to drop your to- toothpaste and deodorant into your backyard, right? Like, how awesome is that? Terrifying, sure. But it's still, like, how cool is that? That they can just send a drone. Like, we live in an instant world, right? Think things like Uber, right? Like, I can pull on my, an app on my phone, and I can just hit a few buttons, and within, like, 10 minutes, somebody drives and takes me somewhere. Again, terrifying, but awesome, Right, like how cool is that? Uh, like we live in such an instant world, DVRs, right? Like our life is on demand. Like I don't have to ever miss a Giants game. And I can skip through the commercials, you know? Like how great is that? Like we live in such an instant world, but what we have to recognize is that fosters in us a sort of attitude and expectation. That we have become kind of so conditioned to expect things quickly that, that when, when, when something is slow, like that's difficult for us. Like right, it's the moment when you're trying to like turn your computer on. And it takes forever, and you get so irritated out of nowhere, right? Like we live in an instant world, and so to follow Jesus to do the slow things of life works. It almost grinds against us. It's hard for us to carve a path in this world where we can do these slow things. Because again, as these kind of pressures and forces from the world begin to shape our hearts, we have to recognize that from our hearts is where we live. So as I'm used to this instant life, it's shaping my heart, it's forming itself, and from there is where I live. It is from our inside, our will, that our life is pushed forward. Right? I talked a lot about this with students when I was the youth pastor right, is that your heart is where things come from. The reason you dress the way you did, the friends you have, the job and career you followed most likely were from a decision in your heart, right? So I will say it is from a decision in your heart. Like we live from our hearts, our core. And so listen to this verse in Proverbs chapter four. Okay, Solomon, right, the wisest man who ever lived, he says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flow the springs of life. Okay, he recognizes that from our hearts we live. And so that phrase with all vigilance means protect your heart above anything else. Okay, like more than anything you do, protect your heart. And, and like, like, for instance, like I would imagine most of us probably locked the door to our house when we left. Maybe not. It's a pretty nice area. Right? Maybe not. But you probably locked your car. Right? Like I, I parked across the street. I locked it. Like, and what the author is getting at is he's saying, listen, protect your heart above anything. And so if you begin to think about the things you protect, like your family, like your job, like your car, whatever it is, is those require actions and decisions and intentionality to protect them. And so what Solomon's saying is, listen, protect your heart above anything else because that is from where we live. If we live from our heart, it would be who of us, right, to, to guard it and protect it, to understand the influences that are shaping it into what it is so that when we walk this slow life of Jesus... That we're shaping and transforming our hearts and protecting it. And okay, what I think is so important is, is that we understand that this is an intentional action, right? that from our insides, to protect it, we have to make decisions. Because again, it is from our hearts that we live. That's why I used to tell students and it would like blow their minds that maybe following your heart isn't always the best thing. Because our hearts are broken, right? I mean, that's what scripture says. But students were always like, oh, but I just, my heart's telling me to do it. That's not always good. I wake up sometimes and my heart tells me I'm just going to be angry. And so I'm angry, right? Like, has anyone ever experienced that? You know, and like, and so for some of us, we, we get this idea in our head that like, like, I talk to people and they're like, oh, I made a mistake last week. I sinned. And I, I just kind of pause and say, well, you didn't make a mistake. Your heart is in a condition that it allows mistakes. Okay, And that's fine. God is working in that. And that's what we're getting at. Okay, but, but we have to get this idea that it's from our insides that we live, that we push forward. So the spirituality of persimmons, right? Isn't that a fancy way to put it? Um, persimmons. Okay. When my wife and I moved to Napa, we bought this house. And in the backyard against the back fence, there were five trees, right? It was a little tiny backyard, um, but there were five trees. And we bought it in July. And when we got it, it had been kind of unattended for quite a few months. And there, these trees had just like taken over the backyard. All right, so we walk in, and to the right, there were two um, Asian pear trees, which were delicious. And then right next to it, there was one or two apricot trees, um, also pretty good. And then there was this tree in the corner. We had no idea what it was, right? No idea. And so when we move in, we, I mean, these trees had, like, it's hard to I mean, we couldn't see our lawn because they had, like, covered everything, right? And so we move in. I kind of go to work, and for a couple months, I'm cleaning them up. I'm clearing them out. Um, has, does anyone own fruit trees? God bless you guys. They're like a ton of work, right? Like they're terrible. Um, I hate fruit trees. That's what I've decided after my short experience. Um, I'll just go to the store. It's easier. Uh, I'll, have, I'll have a drone drop it off. Even easier, right? Um, but so, so I clean them out. And, and by the time like October, November comes around, right? I kind of got things in order. But by the time October, November came around, this hidden mysterious tree off to the side, it like I woke up and it exploded with like 10,000 persimmons, right? Like it was like out of nowhere, there's like a gajillion of these things. And we had the big ones, right? There's two types of persimmons I learned. And you know what's funny about the big ones is they're terrible. Like they, they taste gross. Like the only thing they're good for is cooking. I'm like, how do I have 10,000 of these things then, right? Like, and so these things, what they would do is they would sit there and they would grow and grow. And then all of a sudden they would drop. And they were just time bombs blowing my lawn up. Because they would just explode and it would kill my lawn. And it was just like, it was a mess, Okay, but what we learn, and the reason I bring that up, is that persimmon tree wasn't a persimmon tree just because I saw its fruit, right? It was a persimmon tree back in July when we bought the house. Okay, we didn't know until it pushed forth persimmons. At its core, to its DNA, down in the roots, in everything, it was a persimmon tree to its core. It is when it pushed forth that we were able to just recognize it, Right? It wasn't a persimmon tree because someone came along and, like, stapled a persimmon to it. Instead, it was a persimmon tree, so it pushed forth persimmons. And so Jesus talks about this a lot. He uses this very analogy, and he says it is from our core that we live that we push forth, and so we must protect our hearts. Because as our hearts soak up and change and adapt, as we, if, if we're not careful, those things slowly shape us into the person we're becoming. And that's a challenge, right? So, flip in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And Matthew chapter 7, this is Jesus, and he's um, finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount, I think, is something that needs to be revived in the church. It is like, it is Jesus' magnum opus, it is his manifesto of what life in the kingdom is like. Uh, and, and I think the, the kind of the problem or why I think this has been shoved to the side um, is really going back to, like, the Great Awakening um, with guys like Jonathan Edwards um, and kind of those revivalist movements is what was happening is the, the church really got focused on, on, on the, the, the process of conversion but not discipleship, right? So, so and, and again, it was, those are good and important things, but we stopped short or what Dallas Willard, who I'll quote later, says, it was like the great omission, is that we focus so much on converts, we miss that Jesus is offering life now. Because again, the majority, the bulk of Jesus' teaching is about life in this place here and now. But we, in, in kind of the Western church, have focused primarily on how do we die well, but not how we live well. And Jesus is saying that life, the kingdom is here, it is present, it's bursting forth in this place right now, and we can live it now. Right? John 10.10, 10, right? I've come to give life and life abundant. And so the Sermon on the Mount is really how he is kind of, a, it's, it's his teachings. He's saying this is how you live the kingdom way. And so it's important we have to kind of revive this kind, kind of uh, living because, again, it's so important. And it's difficult, right? I mean, he's, he says things in there like don't be angry, right, because anger and murder are essentially the same thing. Right? He says things like don't lust, don't worry, don't repay evil for evil. Like, those are difficult teachings, but I think, again, what Jesus is getting at is he's saying, become the kind of person for which loving your enemy is easier than not loving your enemy. And so this passage we're going to look at, um, he, again, this is the last section of his, uh, his sermon. He's going to present four different pairs, okay, or four different dichotomies, okay? So, so kind of track that as we go. He's going to present um, two gates. He's going to present two trees. He's going to present two claims, and he's going to present two builders, Right, and so we're going to kind of break that down. So starting in verse 13, a little before what we have on the screen there, I want to start there. In verse 13 of chapter 7, he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Okay, so he says there's, there's this wide gate. On one side, the crowds will flood kind of towards this wide gate. He says, this is the easy path. This is kind of the natural pull is towards the wide gate. And he says, many, many will walk through it, but it leads to destruction. Okay, but then he says on the other side, okay, he says, there's this narrow gate. And it's difficult and it's hard and few find it. But when you do, it leads to life. Okay, and I love that he uses the language of easy and hard. Because I think that's important. Because in church, we're terrified of the idea of effort because we're saved by grace and you know faith alone and I get that and that's true but right grace is not opposed to or, uh, grace is not opposed to effort it's opposed to earning okay grace is not opposed to effort it is opposed to earning okay you don't earn your salvation you don't earn the love of god that is on you it is given to you it is gifted to you but to follow jesus to deny yourself to learn to live the way Jesus is offering us takes effort. That's okay. In fact, I think it's, it's, it's freeing because it is a practice. right? Like think in Galatians 5, Paul kind of talks about how um, you know, that, that path is with the fruit of the Spirit. At the beginning of it, he says, you know, he says to, to keep in step with the Spirit or walk in the Spirit. And then later on, the passage we most know says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, patience, peace, kindness, and so on. Okay, but what is the command there? The command isn't to love, isn't to be joyful, isn't to be peaceful. The command is to walk in the Spirit, right? And as we walk in the Spirit, it pushes forth joy, patience, kindness, you know, self-control, all that. Right? That is the byproduct. It's not, because most of us, again, when we, when we see the teachings of Jesus, we think, okay, love your enemy. All right, next time my enemy confronts me, I'm just going to you know, kind of muster the willpower and love him. Okay, but that's hard, and that maybe every once in a while we can make that happen. But then he teaches things like don't worry, right? Like that's, that's hard. That's hard. Like don't be angry. That's difficult. It takes practice. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes keeping in step with the Spirit, as Paul says. Right? And when I talk about slow, I mean years upon years Right, like, I preach this sermon from a position where it's like there are, there are people I guarantee in this room who've been following Jesus far longer and are far closer to Jesus and more mature in their faith than I'll, than I'll be. And that's okay. Right? Like yesterday, yesterday morning as I was getting ready to leave, uh, it was not a good shining Kevin moment. All right? uh, my daughter every Saturday has dance class and with my wife ready to burst, uh, I'm kind of in charge of that now. And so my daughter, who is really smart and she knows when we're running late, she like has this power over me. Um, Right? Like, and so she knows we're running late, and she kind of like, I'm gonna mess with dad. Like, she didn't do that, but you get the idea, right? Uh, And so we're running late, and I kind of like, I'm trying to get her there, and I snap at her, and I kind of start yelling at her, and I yell at my wife, and like, honestly, like, I'm about to leave in a couple hours to come preach a sermon about living from your heart, (laughs) right? And I'm sitting there, and I, I literally, as, as I, I apologize to my wife before I left after a few hours, and I apologize to my four and a half year old, and God was just kind of reminding me that, you know what, there are parts, that wasn't a mistake. That wasn't a mistake. There are parts in my heart that God's still working in that is slow, and I need to be patient as God, kind of where I engage with God, and that I put in the effort to foster more patience. Right? Like that is, it's part of our journey, church. We, we just expect one day to be like Jesus. But again, Jesus, I mean, think about the ways that he would retreat in solitude all night. Think about the ways he would spend time in prayer and community, and he would patiently kind of walk through these things because he's working on, you know, being a healthy tree, if you will, to push forth good fruit. So listen to what he says. Um, this is the one we have on the screen in verse 15. And again, Jesus here, he's he's speaking specifically to teachers, okay? But he's going to use this analogy of the tree a couple chapters later. And so I'm going to kind of use it here in the same way. So a bit out of context, maybe in this passage, but in the teaching of Jesus, I think it falls right in line. And so he says this in verse 15. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. are Grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, and thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Again, he's saying there's, there's a diseased tree, and I love it. He says it cannot produce good fruit. Like at its core, it will not produce something good because it's broken. Right, like That persimmon tree was never going to produce figs or oranges or whatever. It was a persimmon tree to the core. It would produce that. But he says there are good trees that will produce good and healthy fruit that cannot produce bad fruit. Because again, as we walk in the slow way of Jesus, loving our enemies becomes easier at some point than not loving them. Because it has transformed us, it has shaped our hearts, and that is the natural outpouring of our life. Right, he goes on, and this one gets a bit scary, but in verse 21 he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He says there's two claims. There's two people. There's ones who would say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty things in your name? And Jesus says, but I never knew you. He says, but then there's others who will say, Lord, Lord, and they'll call out. And he'll say, I knew you. I recognize you. We we had connection, we had relationship. And this to me is so scary because I've been around church long enough to know that we are really good at looking the part. We are really good at stapling persimmons onto your branches and calling yourself a persimmon tree. Like we are really good at that. And what he says, and, what, and I love that he recognizes the works, right? He says, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works? Because for the person that Jesus doesn't know, he looks to his works and he says, what I did, right, does that not count? Didn't we know you? But Jesus is saying, listen, that wasn't who you are. It wasn't your core. That anyone in his on-the-spot moment can kind of project a view that they're spiritual or that they follow Jesus. But it's in the moments when things get difficult that our character is revealed, which he's gonna use that kind of a little later. But he's gonna say, listen, in those moments, he says, those that call me Lord are gonna know me. Those will know me. Listen to how he ends. This is the very last section of the Sermon on the Mount verse 24. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and who does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. He says there's two builders says so there's going to be one who built their house on rock. They're going to be the ones that listen to my word. They're the ones that do it, that obey it, that slowly, they engage in the slow work of the heart. And there's going to be others who just project this view that they have it figured out. There'll be others that project this kind of understanding that, yes, I know Jesus, but don't participate in the slow work of the heart. And what I love about this analogy, why I think it's so brilliant, is that both houses, when the weather's good, they look fine right? They look totally fine. You can play the part and look totally fine. But when the rain comes, when the storm hits, when the floodwaters rise, when the winds are swirling, your your integrity, the character of who you are is revealed. And if it wasn't firmly rooted, if it isn't a life that is grounded in Jesus, it'll crumble. And he says, great was the fall of it. Again, church, we can project all we want, but to follow Jesus is to embody the kingdom of heaven. So when your enemy comes against you, when that coworker slanders you again, when that family member talks behind your back, when that friend doesn't treat you the way you should, in those moments, if you've been engaging in the slow work of the heart, you're able to love them. You're able to just kind of let that roll off your back. You're able to engage in the way of the kingdom. Right, like this is so difficult, but again, as we as we go, as we as we approach the Christian life, as we take the slow work of the heart, we will slowly find ourselves more and more like Jesus. So, Steph Curry, I told you I'd get there. All right, Steph Curry. I was um, I was a basketball coach in Napa for a couple years. I played basketball in high school. Um, I've spent a lot of time in gyms. I've watched a lot of basketball, and I have never seen someone do the things that Steph Curry does. Right, and that includes Jordan. Although Jordan was definitely the better player, but that includes Jordan. All right, he's the greatest. Don't tell me LeBron is. You're 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 wrong. Um, Even if it's your opinion, you're wrong. Right, Uh, but I have never seen someone do the things that Steph Curry does. Okay, now here's the thing: is if when I was coaching, if I were to look at one of my players and say, "I want you to go be like Steph Curry." What they're going to do is they're going to go in the gym and they're going to start jacking up threes all day long, right? They're going to start throwing things. It's going to be hitting the, the shot clock. It's going to be hitting off the scoreboard. It's going to be clanking off the backboard. Like, they're going to go there and they're thinking, okay, if I be like Steph Curry, I look when he's in the game, that's what he does. Okay, I'm just going to do it. Okay, but if I were to coach someone to be like Steph Curry, I'm going to tell him, I'm going to say, hey, come over here. Leave the basketball over there. We're not ready for that yet, <laughs> right? We're going to go a foot away from the basket. I'm going to teach you where your feet are supposed to go. I'm going to teach you that you want your shoulders aligned with the basket. I'm going to teach you that your hand needs to be off to the side, that the ball needs to rest on your fingertips, and we're going to work on this. And We're going to do this for a long time without a ball. And then slowly I'm going to hand them a basketball, and I'm going to say, okay, we're going to stand one foot from the basket, and you're just going to work on this until you swish ten in a row. And then the next time, once they do that, they're going to move another spot a foot from the basket, and they're going to swish ten in a row. I tell my guys every time they come to the gym, that's the first thing you do. Okay, and if they shoot a three, the first thing they do, I make them run. Right? It's because for them, everything starts a foot from the basket where it says that we switch 10 here, 10 there, 10 there, and then slowly you take a step back and you do it again, over and over. Take a step back and you do it again, over and over. Right? Because here's the reality, is when Steph Curry somehow creates an inch of room and he jacks a shot up and it falls in, that's not luck. That's not a fluke. He is the type of player for which that shot is possible. He is the type of player that that shot does not surprise him. It doesn't really surprise anyone anymore because of who he has become. Okay, I read an article on ESPN the other day that he shoots during the season, he makes 500 shots a day. 500 shots. Now, in a game, he shoots between like 40 and 50 okay? percent. In practice, I'm going to bump that up to probably 60 to 70 percent. Okay, so if you're making 500 shots, which he says he only counts as makes, which I love that. But he says, if you're making that, mean you're probably shooting around 1,000 shots a day. And that's just his shooting workouts. Right, like think about that. 1,000 shots a day to become the player he is. But for some reason, when we follow Jesus, we think we can just show up and be like Jesus. And this is true of any discipline, right? Like my daughter loves art. Okay, but I'm not going to go tell her to go paint the Mona Lisa. Like, it's not going to happen. But years upon years, as she slowly fosters her ability and her skill, and as that grows and grows and grows, painting the Mona Lisa becomes not only a possibility, but a natural outpouring of her talent. Right? I guess it's true of any discipline. Okay, any runners in the house? Not me, but okay, good. There are a few, all right? I hear, no, my wife's a runner. And so here's the thing. If I were to try to go run a marathon, tomorrow I'm not going to go out there and run 26 miles. I'll fall over and die by mile three. Right? And then I'll never run again. Okay? That's pretty much what would happen, right? It takes a slow, incremental process where you slowly run one mile, then two, then three, and you work your way up. And then all of a sudden, running a marathon, difficult as it is, is still a natural possibility. And again, for some reason, when we follow Jesus, because we don't want to get our effort mixed up with our salvation, we think we can just show up and do it in that moment. But Jesus is saying, no, this takes time. It takes time to be the right tree. It takes time to grow in that. It takes time for us to foster that. And and so then we have these couple verses from Jesus in Matthew 11 and 1 John 5. Okay, and these two, it's difficult because we look at the teachings of Jesus and we think about how hard it is. Okay, I think we have these on the screen. There it is, Matthew 11. And we think about how hard it is, but then Jesus says things like this. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, and my yoke is essentially a rabbi's teaching. That's what he's saying there. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All right, like We look at that and we think, man, that is so difficult. I, I have to do all these things, but what he's saying is that if you look at the Sermon on the Mount when it talks about not worrying and not being angry and those sorts of things, he says that's easy when your heart is in the right position. When your heart has been formed, he says, you find rest there because the easy thing to do is to not worry. It is harder for you to worry than it is to not worry. All right, then he says this in 1 John. He says, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And this is kind of the, the secret of the easy yoke, as Dallas Willard puts it. He says the secret of the easy yoke is that as we become the type of people that God is forming us into, this life naturally pushes out from us. So, church, we have to begin to look at the internal life. Look at what's inside that is pushing out life. So I've mentioned Dallas Willard a few times. If you don't know who Dallas Willard is, I recommend you go home and you order everything and have a drone drop it off at your house, all right? Uh, He wrote The Divine Conspiracy, which I think is the most significant book for the church in the past 50 years, if not 100 years. Right? Like, I think it's so important. He wrote, um, where I do some of this stuff, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he wrote The Great Omission that I put before. Uh, read all of them, all right? That's what I recommend. Um, but he was a, a, a professor of philosophy at USC. Um, super smart guy. He died in the past year. Um, but he wrote this in his book, Spirit of the Disciplines. <clears throat> and he says, In this truth lies the secret of the easy yoke. The secret involves living as he lived in the entirety of his life, adopting his overall lifestyle, Following in his his steps cannot be equated with behaving as he did when he was on the spot. To live as Christ lived is to live as he did all of his life. Our mistake is to think that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently, and hopefully while living the rest of our lives just as everyone else around us does. He says we expect to be like Jesus and live like everyone else. But Jesus was the kind of person who did these things. He is the type of person because of his time in prayer and solitude and and community and growing and learning that he became the type of person that he was. And so if we're expected to follow Jesus, we have to follow him in in the entirety of his life. We have to follow him in a way where we recognize the disciplines that he created in his life to become that type of person. And we can't expect to be like everyone else. I can't expect to go run 26 miles tomorrow. It's not going to happen. I'm not the kind of person that's going to run one mile, but I'm not the kind of person that's going to run 26 miles, right? And for some reason, again, we miss this with our walk with Jesus, but it's so important that we begin to do there. So I want to end with just a little bit about fasting because throughout kind of church history, there's these disciplines that the church has kind of created that help foster this slow work of the heart. Things like like fasting, like prayer, like silence and solitude, um, learning, community, like all of those are practices that the church has kind of um, forever practiced that really foster that kind of life. And we've really lost them in our current culture. Um, But fasting is essentially this idea about exchanging your hunger. Okay, so it's whatever it is you hunger, I recommend if you can and if it's, you know, appropriate to fast from food. Because I think it is such a visceral way of feeling. I mean, we feel hunger, right? Like, you're already like, Kevin, stop, I'm hungry, it's lunchtime. Right? Like, you feel that. Like, we know hunger. It's very visceral. It's very, like, we, we, can, we can know that feeling very quickly. And so what, what fasting does, what other spiritual disciplines do is it exchanges our hunger, okay, whether it's food or whatever it's for, for our hunger for God. We say essentially when I'm going to spend time, what I would normally spend time eating or on social media or watching TV or whatever it is, it was when I usually spend that time doing that, I'm going to spend my time turning my eyes to Jesus. I'm going to spend that time fixing my eyes towards the divine. right? As, as Jesus said in, in you know, the verse I mentioned at the beginning in Mark chapter 8, right, to deny yourself and follow him. That's the essence of fasting. You know, I love um, the, the quote that was said about fasting, that fasting without prayer is dieting. I mean, we don't enter into the disciplines to diet, right? Like you don't fast to lose a few pounds, at least not in the spiritual sense, right? Fasting is always pointed towards God. The disciplines are always about spiritual progress and moving towards becoming like Christ, and so that's kind of the, the you know, fasting in practice. I encourage you to look at uh, the bulletin. There's a ton of good information about nuts and bolts of how to fast. Um, you know, that We don't necessarily need time um, for that now. But fasting, number two, it centralizes God's sustenance. Okay? It centralizes our need for God. Because the things that we would normally spend our days with, again, whatever it is, food, entertainment, whatever, is when we get rid of those Okay, fasting allows us to remember that we live on the word of God. All right, Jesus in Matthew, or Mark 4, Matthew 4, right? He says, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. It centralizes the fact that that Jesus is the one that sustains things. In Colossians, Paul says that Jesus is holding the world together. I love that language. Because he's saying that's what's pumping blood through your veins right now, is Jesus holding creation And it reminds us, fasting reminds us of that. And then lastly, fasting reorders our life. It reminds us of our priorities. It reminds us that we don't live for Netflix, as good as that is. We don't live for social media. We don't live for food. It reminds us of our priorities. Listen to Paul's words in Corinthians 6. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything or mastered by anything. Fasting gives us the chance to say, man, this is a big piece in my life. I'm going to abstain from that to remember that it isn't what fuels my life, that I'm not ruled by my stomach. But that there are other forces that are, are beneficial that I'm going to allow master me. Listen, later in, in 1 Corinthians 9, he says, but I discipline my body, or in the NIV, I think it says, I beat my body. He says, and he's speaking in hyperbole, so don't go do that, right? But he says, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. He says, I will do whatever it takes to let my body and my heart be shaped into who Jesus is. Think about, like, like, Paul gets to the point where he can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Think about how audacious that claim is. He's saying, you look at me and you see the life of Christ. He says, I embody it fully, so now you can follow me as I follow Christ. All right, like that, That's the extent that he took this kind of slow work of the heart. He says, I'll do whatever it takes to discipline my body. And so my prayer for you, Sebastopol, as you engage in kind of a corporate fast, that you spend February really disciplining yourself to find the narrow road. May you find that step by step, you become more like Jesus as you enter through that narrow path that leads to life. And may you recognize the fruit in your life and say, Jesus, I need my roots transformed. And that we say, God, what are the things that I need to trim? What are the things I need to get rid of so I can engage in pushing forth good fruit? May you build your house on the rock of Jesus. May you find the teachings of Jesus that give life and not burden, but that slowly may you begin to love your enemies because that is easier than not loving your enemies. So may you embrace the life that Jesus promises. Church is not burdensome. It's difficult and long and slow, but it is, it is life-giving. It is life to the fullest. So will you pray with me as we close? Heavenly Father, Jesus, we, um, God, we thank you for being patient. God, we are slow creatures. Um, and Lord, we need you to walk alongside us and teach us how to follow in your way. And so, Lord, I, I pray over my friends in this room, Lord, I pray over myself that, that we would revive these kind of slow disciplines in our life to become more like you. Or may we understand that it's a practice, it takes time, may we maybe just forgive ourselves a little quicker because we know we're, we're beginners. We're beginners. And so, Jesus, may you walk alongside us. May you mature our hearts. May you help us and encourage us along the way. Um, and Jesus, we just thank you for your love that is free that we don't have to earn. But God, we want true life. We want true life, and so help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Isn't that great? Amen. 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 Well, I'm Larry Jacobs, one of the elders, and I get to do the communion today. Um, communion is something I could talk about all day long. It is part of our, our beliefs and part of our lives, and it goes... The, the Bible just kind of encompasses the whole thing with, with, with the communion, the Last Supper. Without it, we wouldn't have this religion that we have now. So in Mark 14, chapter 14, verses 22 and 26. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. How would you feel if someone took bread, said, break it, gave it to you and said, this is my body. I think that's the same reaction the uh, disciples had. They're all going, hmm, we're trying to understand it. This is still new. Then he took the cup, and when, he gave, when he, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, remember the new covenant, which is shed for many. Assuredly, I say to you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you died on the cross and you shed your blood to cleanse us of our sins. We just want to show in this remembrance of our love for you, our thankfulness and gratefulness of what you did for, our, for us. For dying for each one of us. And we just give you glory and we give you honor. And everybody said, Amen.